Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rossgem, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome back to Emerge, Evolve, Lead. My guest today is Diana Dubbs, and she is Director of Business Development for Dream Life Recovery in Western Pennsylvania. She lives in New Jersey with her hubby and two kids, and Diana has been sober for eight years now. We met on LinkedIn several months ago, and I'm delighted to have her on the podcast today. Hi, Diana. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Welcome to the show. Why don't we start off by um, just having you share a little bit about what your life is now, your, you know, your home life, your um, job, any hobbies that you might have, your sobriety date, things like that. So um, I got sober on October 21st, 2013. Um, What my life is like today is very full. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the best way that I can explain it because the minute that I stopped, um, doing my extracurricular activities of drinking and doing drugs. It's when life started to happen for me. Um, I met my husband really super early in recovery. Um, We got married. We have two beautiful little kids. And, you know, since then, I would love to tell you I have a thousand hobbies. My hobbies today consist of waking up in this very regular routine of going to the gym, um, momming and working you know, um, you know, and where I have time, it's, you know, spending time with my friends and working my recovery program is always going to take precedence over all of that. Um, you know, but that's what my life is like and it's super full and, you know, there's ups and there's downs and, you know, but today it's just, it's life and it's good. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I mean, that's what life is for any of us, right? Before it was drama and, uh, you know, incidents always happening or health issues with sickness or constantly trying to find that next fix. And now it's uh, every day, just taking care of ourselves and loving our people and, you know, trying to, to, trying to do our best at work. So I totally respect that. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're, that you're living that lifestyle because it really is so much better. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's um, go back then, Diana, and tell us a little bit about your story. Like what happened? How did you grow up? How did you sort of discover that you might've had a problem with alcohol and, or drugs. I don't know what your, what is your story and what happened and how did you get into recovery? So, um, I don't come from an alcoholic family at all. Um, my parents are very normal. Um, they are about to celebrate, I don't know, something crazy, like 55, 56 years of, of marriage. Um, you know, and they're not, they're not alcoholics, you know, they can drink a little bit. My mom barely drinks at all. Um, my dad will have a glass of wine here and there and doesn't, you know, drink a lot. I have two older brothers, you know, but I never felt a part of, um, I come from a really big Italian family filled with love, like love upon love upon love. Everybody loves you in an Italian family, you know, but I never felt like I fit in. I never felt comfortable. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. And I had all of those isms, you know, years, years and years before I actually picked up a drink. 
you know? Um, and the first time I drank, I think I was like 13 years old and I got smashed and it was a blackout drunk the first time. And it was awful. And, you know, it was embarrassing, but I, I just remember feeling so okay with the fact that it was embarrassing and it was blacked out and I didn't care, you know? Mm. Um, and that's kind of how my life went, you know, throughout high school, it wasn't an everyday thing, but I was certainly one of those kids that it didn't matter what you put in front of my face. I was going to try it. Um, and the temptation was never, is this going to hurt me? You know, what's this going to do? It was always, how is this going to make me feel? Because my goal was always to feel better than how I felt, you know, I was always chasing feeling better, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and when I used and when I drank, I just, I don't know that I necessarily felt better, but I know that I didn't care, you know, and that's, you know, really where I, where I lived for a really long time, you know, um, my drinking got progressively worse and drug use got progressively worse as I got older. Um, you know, about 25 is when my drinking really took off heavily. Um, and I think about there is where, you know, there were days that went on that I didn't, I couldn't go through, I couldn't go from day to day without having something, you know, um, it wasn't until you have to forget my, forgive my timelines because they're all a little blurry at this point. Um, but around 2010, I moved to Philadelphia for a job. You know, a friend had recognized that like things weren't going so great. And, you know, for me, I lived in that world of like, it's never my fault that things aren't going so great. Mm-hmm. It's always, you know, the job, the friends, the lifestyle, um, the location. It, it didn't matter what it was, but it wasn't my fault, you know? So when my friend had presented an opportunity to move to Philadelphia, I took it and ran with it. And within three years, you know, my opiate addiction had spun out of control, you know? Um, and that's, that's really what took me out was my opiate addiction. You know, um, I was, I was a pill popper. Um, I bought them off the streets. It was no doctor's fault. Um, nobody prescribed me medications. I didn't have a backache. I took the drugs because I liked the effect that I felt, you know? And one day I woke up and I could not take the drugs anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And for most people that might be a scary feeling, but for me, it's when my addiction kicked into high gear because I woke up feeling sick, like I had the flu. And so when I thought that I had the flu and a friend reminded me that I was actually dope sick, the first thing I did was called my dealer um, because I didn't want to feel like that anymore. Um, You know, I want to say by the end, it was just this rat race of not wanting to be sick anymore and wanting to be high, but not being able to get high anymore um, yeah. and not being able to get drunk enough to f- not feel anything. Um, and uh, the sickness was coming on quicker and quicker and quicker. And there wasn't enough drugs in the world and there wasn't enough alcohol in the world to take me out of my own skin, you know? Yeah. Um, we talk about it a lot in the rooms of, you know, remembering your last drunk and my last drunk was really lonely and it took me hours to get drunk hours. I remember sitting in my house until three, four o'clock in the morning with the lights off, just trying to get drunk and I couldn't. And that's when I knew that I wasn't okay anymore. 
Um, you know, I have, I mentioned in the beginning that I have a family that absolutely loves me. Um, that family that absolutely loves me recognized that something was wrong, but they were not familiar with addiction. They were not really well understood what that looked like. They thought everything under the sun was wrong with me. Um, you know, and then, and I tried to negotiate because that's how I had kind of lived. Like if I could negotiate my way out of something, I would take a few steps back, maybe take a slap on the wrists. Um, you know, but in this case, like I was tired of negotiating, you know, and I tried for a little bit. Um, and for, by a little bit, I mean, for a couple hours until I finally just said, I'm a drug addict and I need help, you know? So it was, um, you came to surrender pretty quick there. Yes. In that, that day. Moment. Yeah, that day. Um, I would love to tell you that it was like a piece of cake from there on, you know. Um, oh, I wish you could, too. But that's not the way it goes. <laughs> no, you know, by the grace of God, I am a, a like a unicorn, a one and done. I went to treatment one time and I just I never wanted to feel that way again. So when I came out of treatment, you could have told me to stand on my head with my eyes closed for a year and that was going to keep me sober and I would have done it, you know. Um, but I definitely wanted to do things my way and I took the long way and it took me a long time to understand that my way doesn't work. So even if I'm not drinking and drugging, my way just is never the easy way. And I need to be the last person that I consult when I need to do something, you know, I do know it's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's really an ego thing, right? Because either our fear controls us or our control controls us. We, we want to control everything. We want to make it so that it's um, the, you know, less painful way. But once you fall on your face a few times with that, you know, and it really hurts, you finally, you at some point, you must have started taking suggestions because it sounds like you got it. So do, did you go to a 12-step program? Did you work the steps? I did. So, you know, I can tell you that no matter how much I tried to do things my way, I never stopped taking suggestions, okay. you know? And, um, when I went to that treatment program, you know, I spent 32 days there. And when I discharged, they said, you know, go find out people like you, you know, you came here, you, you were able to understand what's wrong with you. Um, and the problem is you. So now you have to go find more people like you, you know? Um, so I discharged from that treatment center, Thanksgiving morning, 2013, and that day I got home to my house and I remember all of a sudden, like I was in this bubble for 32 days of not feeling the pain anymore, you know? And then you come out and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not good enough anymore. I don't feel good. Like everybody's looking at me weird. They don't know how to talk to me. They don't know how to do this. They don't, you know? And I remembered that the treatment center told me to go find people like me. And there was a meeting less than a mile from my house. Um, and I went and that meeting was my home group for the first year of my sobriety. You know, they met every Tuesday and Thursday night, Tuesdays, they had, you know, a big book meeting and Thursday nights, they had a, a speaker discussion. And, you know, I, I can't tell you where the women I met the first night are, um, but they got me sober that night. You know, yeah. um, they kept me sober that night and then they got me to my next meeting and they got me to my first sponsor. And then my first sponsor got me through my first year and she got me through the steps. And then I got to my next sponsor and all of that stuff happened because I went to that first meeting, you right. know? 
Um, the treatment center that I went to definitely jump-started everything and they cleared my mind, you know, but my recovery happened when I got home. Yeah. It's really scary too. When you first get home after having that kind of a transformation and suddenly people are looking at you feel like they're looking at you different. Well, they are because you are different, but how do you even talk to them? How do you explain all of this? And you don't even have the language almost yet, you know? So yes, I know how, how very difficult that can be. Although I didn't go to treatment, you're, you're, Mine and your stories are very similar. I did a geographical cure. I moved to Texas. That's where I got sober. And uh, then I moved back to the Northeast after about a year and a half of sobriety. But um, it was the same thing. I would take pretty much anything you wanted to give me. Um, I never used intravenous drugs, but that's about the only thing I didn't do. I had, you know, a a sore, a hole actually in my nostril and between the two, you know, the two nostrils, there's a hole, there's a lining, a wall, but there was a hole there for like almost 10 years into sobriety, a sore, a thing that just wouldn't even heal. And, you know, there's the things like that, that we remember that um, do keep it green. So tell me, why do you think I was also the same thing? I came in, I did smoke pot after about 10 days because I didn't know that counted. But once I found out that counted out, pissed me off. I had to start counting all over again. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to screw this up any because I couldn't stand having to start. Count. I had never been sober that long in my life. And here I am, you know, having to redo it just because I smoked some resin from a scraped out screen bowl one day, you know, it's like, cause I couldn't get to a meeting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 it's crazy. And it's crazy how we convince ourselves that that's okay. I know. You know. Well, at that point I was just so new. I just didn't even really know. And I didn't really, I had only just admitted I was an alcoholic. And again, I was just thinking about the alcohol part. I wasn't thinking about all those drugs and everything else. So anyways, the long and the short of it is I, I got in and stayed. What is the key to your success? Why do you think you didn't go back out? So many people do. You know, today I know it's because there's something bigger than me that's keeping me sober. Um, you know, I know that when my family said that this is not going to be a revolving door and if you don't get it, you're not staying, I believed them. Okay. Um, you know, and then I think life just started to happen, you know, in a good way. You know, I started to have, I got married and then I started to have kids and, you know, my kids don't know me as that person. They just right. know me as this person, you, you know, stepped into a new identity is what you did. So tell me about this relationship. Did you meet him in the program? Is he sober I too? I didn't. So I actually, we were in treatment at the same time. Um, and then be started dating after, um, not there. Promise. Yep. yep. That's okay. <laughs> um, you know, um, I met my husband in the program too. So, and we've now have many years together. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, you know, he was the first person that I didn't have to hide anything from, right. you know, because he knew, he knew everything. He everything. knew everything that was, he knew things before I even told them, told him, and he just understood and, and he understood my crazy, you know, and to this day, you know, he probably is the only person who can tolerate my crazy, you know? So, you know, because just because we remove the drugs and alcohol, it doesn't mean that we're not still crazy, you know? Um, yeah. but you know, it, it was through that process that, you know, it didn't really matter to me what struggles we were going to have. It didn't matter, 
you know, what that was going to look like. It just that he was like, he became my home very quickly, you know? Um, and that was what I was searching for was that feeling of, of safety and home. And even during uncertain times in our lives through our journey, you know, um, there has never been a point in time that this, this hasn't been home, you know? So I think that that's, you know, kind of where, where it stands today. That's really great. Like I totally get that. And as somebody in long-term sobriety and long-term relationship, I also know how incredibly important it is that my husband is not my sponsor. He's, he's my home. Like you said, he's my love. He's my heart, my rock, my grounding, but I also have a women's group that I can talk to and really, really close people in my life. How, how is that working for you? And he has his men's group stuff. So um, I think that I had to learn very quickly. I like to fix, manage, and control. It's in my nature. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, very early into our marriage about, um, I want to say about three years into us being together, my husband relapsed. Um, my kids were very, very little. And I learned very quickly that I can't fix, manage and control him into being sober, you know? Um, and I tried. Oh, I, I, I tried. I'm you know, sure. I, yeah. That's I what became, we do. And I became sicker than he was uh, mentally, you know? So when, um, you know, push comes to shove, what I realized <laughs> is that he has his journey and I have mine. And as long as we are walking in the same direction, I tell you what? I'm sorry. Um, um, okay. Um, Oh, this was trying to do for my finger. He nibbled on oh, Okay, it. good job. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I learned very quickly, not so quickly. It took me a while, so I lie, you know. Um, but it's, as long as we're walking towards the same goal, we don't have to be, you know, having the same footsteps. We can just be walking next to each other you know? Um, and that is where I kind of find serenity today is that, you know, he has a different way of, of being sober and I have a different way of being sober and, and that's okay. It, it just, it, as long as we're healthy and we're happy and, you know, we're headed towards the same goal of raising these two beautiful little boys who don't know any different than us, the way that we are, then there is no real concept of, you know, me having to fix, manage and control what he's doing. That's awesome. <clears throat> so I know this is not a, a podcast where I'm supposed to give advice, but <laughs> I'm going to share something with you because uh, we had a daughter too. And coming from two alcoholics, like when they get to be about 10, you should just tell them, just assume you're an alcoholic. Okay. Don't. Oh, don't no, we they know. Um, it's actually a funny story. So my son went to a, um, he went to a birthday party recently. He's, he's six, my oldest son. Um, and we went to a birthday party and I took him and it was parents were invited and, um, you know, it was a bunch of moms and dads hanging out in our town. Um, good people, good parents, you know, and, you know, the kids were having a nerf war and the parents were drinking, you know, some of them were, um, you know, and, and definitely not alcoholically. They, you know, some were having a beer here and there, some, you know, whatever that looks like. And, um, you know, my son asked me, he said, what is, what's beer? 
you know? Um, and it, I, I had to think about it twice because I realized that like, he doesn't know that he doesn't right. know because we don't, we don't have it in the house. Like why would a six year old know what that is if you don't have it, you know? Um, and he asked me, he said, you know, why don't you drink beer? You know? And I, you know, like the, it was like a reflex where I said to him, oh, well, mommy's allergic to it. Just like, you know, you might be allergic to bee sting. So we don't know how you're going to end up if you get stung by a bee. So mommy knows what's going to happen if she drinks beer. So she just doesn't do it. You know, I didn't prep my husband. Um, I didn't think it would come up again, you know, and about a week later he caught my husband and he said, daddy, you know, why don't you drink beer? You know, and very quickly, my husband had the same response to him, you know, perfect. Um, yeah. You know, and that's how we explain it to him is that mommy and daddy are allergic, are allergic. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be if we drink. So we just choose not to. And, you know, they may not be allergic and we don't know what that looks like, but they're not old enough to drink right now anyway. So we don't have to worry about it and we'll deal with it when they are old enough. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. That's all I'm saying is you'll, you'll deal with it when they're, when they're old enough. It's, it's right. a, it's a hard thing. It, it really is to see, but the good news is you have so, you know, to be raising your kids in a sober household gives them so many more tools and see, they can see you working through your issues and they can see you, you know, doing, doing your recovery, really um, being that sober person. So that's fantastic. All right. So we know that um, you've been through a lot, even in, in the first eight years of your recovery, and there's still more to go. Tell me a little bit about your career and how you got involved in being a director. Um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So um, I was about a year into sobriety um, and I wanted to do what everybody does. Um, and I wanted to save the world, you know, um, but I definitely didn't want to be a therapist. I didn't really care why people did what they did. As far as I know, everybody did what they did because they were like me, you know? Um, but I didn't really know that there was other facets to working in treatment, you know? Um, a friend of mine, um, who is a therapist, I reached out to her and I said, you know, how do I get into this world of treatment and, and what, what, what can I do? And she said, you know, before you even start getting involved in treatment, why don't you go volunteer someplace for a year? And if you could do that for a whole year and not get sick of it, then you deserve to work in this industry, you know? Um, and not so get sick because, of it. That's great. Yeah. You know, again, I had been taught now to take suggestions, right? Um, and that my best thought was not the, not the greatest idea. So I listened to her, you know, and I found a not-for-profit and I went and volunteered and I loved it. You know, I loved every piece of it. And, you know, I, I ended up working for them for a few years. Um, and I started doing things like working in the office and then helping with some HR stuff. And then, you know, I started learning the Medicaid process in New Jersey. Um, and I was able to really kind of work what that looked like. And it, this is all through a process of asking people for help, right? Like if I didn't know how to do something, I would just call somebody who did, and then they would lead me to the next person who knew more than them. And that person would lead me to the next person. And unbeknownst to me, I started building this little like black book of contacts, 
you know? And I was just, I just wanted to learn and I wanted to help people, you know? Um, and then I started getting into helping people who had commercial insurance. Um, and there was no difference. It was just, one was a little harder to place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, then I got pregnant with my second son and I just couldn't work nonprofit anymore. You know, I mean, I, I would love to do that for the rest of my life, you know, but unfortunately we were in a position where we just, we needed some more income coming in. And, you know, I took a job with a treatment center, you know, um, and that changed the entire trajectory of what my career was going to look like, you know, um, because, you know, over the next course of many years, I, continue to ask people for help. And I continued to learn from people. And I met a lot of really great people in the industry. And I met a lot of really terrible people in the industry. And I learned, you know, good versus bad. And I saw things that nobody should see. And I saw some really great things, you know. Um, and then I got to a point in 2019 where I was really burnout, really, really burnout. And, um, you know, a friend said to me, and I was considering leaving working treatment completely. And I called one of the mentors that I had had gained over the years. And I said, I'm going to leave treatment. Like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I'm burnt. And he said, you're, you're too good at this job to leave. You need to just go find the treatment center where if your husband were to relapse, you would feel comfortable putting him there, you know? And I started interviewing treatment centers, um, you know, mm -hmm. They would invite me in for an interview and it would turn around where I started asking them and telling them what I was looking for and what I wanted, you know, and I stumbled upon dream life, you know, and, you know, I liked, I liked what they did. I liked that they were owned by two doctors. I liked, you know, that there was an individualized treatment service. I liked that they were primarily going in network, you know, I liked all of those things, um, that made treatment accessible. And I like that they had a niche product, which was trauma because everybody has trauma, whether, you know, I didn't grow up with trauma, but I certainly have trauma that was self-created, you know, um, as a result and a byproduct, you know, and I've spent my last three years, you know, at dream life, you know, almost three years, it'll be three years in, in August. Um, so you were you attracted know. to the leadership, you were attracted to the program, to the, to what they had to offer. And they just, they just started pretty much in 2019 is that they were established, I should say. Yes. A little bit before I got there. Um, you know, I learned enough about treatment to know that your, your clinical product is what's going to sell. Um, because that's what, like anybody who's going into treatment that, that needs it, that needs to be there, they're looking for the clinical product, you know? And if you can figure out a way to authenticate what that looks like with what you believe in, right. then you will be successful in this industry. You know, people who are out there just kind of selling a product because they're getting a paycheck, but not really buying into what they're selling or how they're treating they're not the ones who have longevity in this treatment industry. You know, it's the ones that are able to, to really have, you know, a buy-in to what it's not just about. the buy-in, right? It's about helping people create lasting change, helping people create 
a new life for themselves and leave with the tools so that they can go home and deal with the questions and deal with their life and completely change everything about their life. Cause that's what we have to do. Right. We have to change our friends our fa- not our family, <laughs> but our, yeah. our, our, yeah. And I mean, if, if their treatment is, there's so many people who talk about how, you know, treatment centers save their lives, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we don't save anybody's life. You know, we don't save anybody's life. We give them a place to be safe for 30 days, 35 days. We give them a place to work on their issues, to start the foundation that they're going to build on when they leave our treatment center. You well, know, that's all that anybody could offer. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the, the buy-in on that is from the top down, you know, is that we're not bigger than anybody's higher power. Um, you know, we just really want to help people get on the right track if they're willing to hear a message, you know, it's all about willingness. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so over time you'll be able to put some pretty you know, some statistics together, but even in the industry as a whole, it's not good. And some of the things that you were saying before were, um, you know, that you were in, I I don't know what kind of job it was, but that you saw some really bad stuff. And there's some still very toxic places and people out there that are, quote, trying to help others that haven't done their own work, that still are, you know, have exhibiting poor leadership. And this is why I got into the leadership space. So I know that you are a leader and you have uh, people reporting to you. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about some of the things that you learned in recovery, the skills that you learned in recovery that lend itself to your leadership capabilities. Oh, I mean, again, I like to fix, manage and control, right? Um, I think that what I have learned is that everybody's, everybody's journey is different and, you know, everybody has a different style and a different way about them, you know, and what works for me is not going to work for the next person. Um, and it's way easier to just give them the tools. And when I speak, I try to speak like I'm, I'm talking in the program. I can only tell you what has worked for me. I can't guarantee this is going to be a hundred percent. I can't tell you that this is going to be fruitful for you, but I can tell you it has worked for me. And these are the things that I have done. You know, what are they? What are some of those things? I think my biggest thing is that I have never, ever felt the need to be dishonest in this industry. Good. Honesty, Um, integrity. Yeah. I have never felt the need to you know, if somebody's not appropriate for my facility, um, I will find the facility that is appropriate for them. Um, you know, because we're not a fit for everybody. I mean, I live in New Jersey and the facility is four hours from us in Western Pennsylvania. You know, not everybody is going to be a fit for a four hour drive. Um, not everybody's going to want to do it. And the goal is, okay, well, if you're not willing to come to us, where can we get you? you know, and, and being genuine about that, you know, it's not about a referral. It's not about what can I get back? It's about really making sure that that person got someplace that was appropriate and a good fit for them, you know? Um, and also too, you know, living in my truth, you know, this is, this is who I am, you know, at the end of the day, I do this job, 
I love my job. You know, I have learned over the years that I'm also a mom and a wife and, and balance is hard. Um, and some days it's better than others, you know, but I have to live in that world of not everything is perfect all the time. Sometimes it gets really messy trying to figure out, you know, for people's schedules and mm-hmm. plus, and that's just my house, you know, you know, and then also, you know, being on the road or, you know, having to travel overnight sometimes and things like that, like it gets messy and that's okay, you know, um, because nobody expects us to be perfect. No, no, they don't. Um, but you sound like you're a person who perseveres and figures it out and keeps going anyway. And also, uh, you're, I imagine you're pretty approachable and people are, you find it people easy to talk to you your people? I would love to tell you that I'm approachable. Um, but <laughs> I have heard different. Um, and it actually drives me crazy. Um, because you know, it, it's, it's, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> That's what I tell people all the time is that no, it's not, it's your personality. So let me, you mind if I share a little, I, yeah. I'm a, I consider myself a personality expert and I talk about everything disc, which is a, a certain type and our personalities at work. And do you, are you familiar with the everything? I've disc? had to take a disc test before. Yes. And so I uh, tell me that you're a pretty strong D. I am dominance. And so those people like you who have that personality type, they drive for results and they're very task focused. They're not as people focused, but they want the end goal, which is the vision, which is pl- placing people to get them sober and all of that, which is why you didn't want to be a therapist. I don't want to hear your drama. So <laughs> I just not- want to help you get into the right facility. <laughs> When I took the disc test, it was for another, it was a completely different industry that I worked. Um, and yes, it was dominant, high D with zero empathy. <laughs> zero empathy. <laughs> well, that's no the thing. When you, when you, as you learn and as you continue to grow and your, your whole, all your emotional intelligence will get better and better as you mature and as you get more and more experience and you have longer and longer sobriety, but it is a challenge when sometimes, yeah, you, we have to work with people and you're just trying to get things done and you're telling people what to do. And they're like, well, did you, did you say good morning to me? <laughs> yes. I, I suffer from that all the time. I don't mean to, um, yeah, I don't yeah, mean yeah. to. And after, you know, I, I, I remember in the beginning, um, of working at dream life, like I made so many apologies and I was like, it's just, it's not, I don't mean to do it on purpose, you know? Um, you know, but now, you know, it's nice because the, the people who know me, they accept, they accept me for who I am, you know? Um, because but, you have a good heart and that's really, yeah. you know, in my, in my little wheel, um, you can take a test on my website or a, a little quiz that will tell you what animal best represents your personality style. And the D is represented by the wolf, <laughs> which is, I am going to go after what I want. Nobody's going to deter me. I'm going to do. And, and sometimes I'm going to do it my way until I figure out that I can't do it that way, but it's all usually for the betterment of the pack. Right. In the end, you're going to make sure you nip the heels of everybody to get back into the pack <laughs> and and cuddle them up. Right. Because that's really what we need to do in the end. 
Right. And there's probably so many times that people are cursing me, um, you know, and the, they're cursing me as we're trying to get the results. And then at the end, you know, I'll call and I'll say, hey, you did a really good job. And they're like, ah, like <laughs> an hour ago, you know, um, I you know. know, but it's it's those simple reminders, you know, that I'm I'm learning as we go um, and as I grow you know, that I just got to take more time <laughs> in my day and not be so laser focused all the time. And also boundaries, having boundaries for yourself, because, you know, anything can get toxic at, at certain times if you're not looking out for yourself and your family, but also your values, right? And your what's okay for you and what's not okay. So I'm really glad you got into a good organization that's taking care of you and vice versa. That's fantastic. Sure. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, my, my first priority is that I can put my head on a pillow at night, you know, and I have to make sure that when I go to bed, I have the same peace that I've had for the last eight years, you know? Um, and that's won't ever change. And the minute that I feel like I, I don't have that peace is when there has to be a change, you right. know, and that's my indicator today. Um, you know, but I, you know, I've been lucky, you know, I don't, I don't have to worry about, you know, did I do something wrong? Did I not take care of something? You know, did I do the wrong thing? Did I say the wrong thing? You know, today I promptly admit my, my mistakes right. and I, and I say, I'm sorry when I feel, you know, and I'm also not afraid to ask somebody, you know, did I do something, you know? Yeah. Uh, ask for feedback. That's a great leadership trait as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that we have to, you know, um, it's very true. So Diana, before we wrap up here, is there any advice that you would give to somebody who's new in sobriety or, or, you know, has a couple years and is looking to get into a leadership type position like you, what advice would you give them? Treat your work like you treat your recovery, you know, um, and learn to separate the two, you know, because the minute that those two become commingled is the minute that things get blurry and messy, you know? Um, but if you put your recovery above everything else, everything else in your life will follow suit and follow in line. You know, um, we don't have to work so hard when we're, we're doing the basics, right? Like life is not that hard. Life is still life and it happens, but it's just not so hard when we're doing the things that worked in the very beginning, you know? That was so true. Um, my words for this year are surrender and trust. And it's like, are you kidding me? I'm still having to work on surrender. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. I am. I'm still, because I like to control things too. And right. sometimes I really do have to just let go. So I think that's a fantastic uh, piece of advice. So how can people uh, reach out to you and how can people find you? So you can um, reach out to my cell directly, which is 609-851-2499. Um, you can also reach out through the Dream Life website. It's www.dreamliferecovery.com. Please take a look at it. We have a lot of really fantastic information on there. Um, and we have a lot of really great team needs. So um, if I can't help you, somebody else will. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Please tell your friends and family about it. And um, I'll tell mine about Dream Life Recovery because that sounds like a fantastic place to go. Thank you so, thank much. You so much. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. 
And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.